Hey, hey, welcome on in. It's your boy KV coming at you from my soul renegade sound studios right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm welcoming you to the Ken Valdez Approach. You know, when I was a little boy, I remember hearing music throughout the house. Whether it be Roy Orbison or Ricky Nelson or, you know, Sam Cooke. Those voices changed me. I knew that music was something very important to me. A little bit later on, I caught Jeff Healy on TV. Maybe I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan at El Combo or, you know, uh, Eddie Van Halen, Metallica, Stripe, or Journey, uh, Anne and Nancy Wilson. I mean, Prince, Prince, right? And I knew that music had this, this big-time hold on me, man. I knew that it was so important to me. And then in 1992, I went with a friend of mine to a concert. And it was one of the first, like, real deal concerts that I had ever been to. But we sat right in front of this guitar player. And he blew my mind along with the seven or eight guys that were on stage with him that night. They put on a hell of a show. The band was Chicago, and the guitar player was Dwayne Bailey. They changed my life that night. I knew right then and there that music was going to be my career. That was going to be my path. I wanted to do it like that, man. It was incredible. Well, Dwayne and I met a couple of years later, <laughs> and we get into that story as well. But without him, I wouldn't be where I'm at at all. It's really incredible to think about. Dwayne is an exceptional singer, songwriter, guitar player. Man, he's worked with Chicago. He's also been a part of Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. I mean, God, when you think about it, iconic American bands of the last 50 years, you can't help but mention Bob Seger or Chicago, right? He's worked with Pat Boone. He's worked with Stu Hamm and so many others. It was incredible to talk to him. This conversation lasted three hours, so it was really hard to pare everything down into this particular episode. So I really hope you enjoy it because we're going to go into a bit of a, of a rabbit hole and a deep dive. We're going to go here, there, and everywhere. But, man, his stories are amazing. This is my conversation with the one and only Dwayne Bailey. Check it out right here on The Approach. All right. I am here. With one, the only, Dwayne Bailey, man. And uh, before we go into this, dude, you know, just it, it's it's so surreal talking to you, man. Because you know, I, I I know I've told you this, but let me let me express it to you again, and and let this audience hear. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it was not for this man. Let me explain <laughs> just a little bit, man. I mean, I was. Um, Going into my freshman year of high school, and Chicago, the band Chicago, was playing in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at my favorite venue of all time. It was the Paulo Soleri, and I had I had tickets. I was there with uh, with my buddy Bjorn Hamry, man. I'll never forget this. And we're sitting on uh, on stage left, pretty much directly in front of you. And I had never been to a concert like that before. So it was just a surreal experience of just massive music and, and, and incredible talent. And then there's this guitar player who just blew my mind. Like, it was that moment where I'm like, yeah, man, th this, is, this is what I want. And that guitar player was you. You changed my life, man. You That's changed amazing. my life. So I tell you, Kenny, uh, it uh, – I. 
we only played that venue one time, but, and, and I've played, you know, a million gigs in my life, in my very long life and, uh, all around the world and some venues you never forget. Uh, I remember the venue more than I remember the performance because, you know, after a while, uh, when you play in a band, like, especially like Chicago, it's a very set set that you play every night and uh after you play you know thousands of them night after night just like the bus ride after the gig uh many of those bus rides you know become you can't remember one from the other but uh venues always stand out i don't know it's just something about every time i when you're out west you know i grew up in kansas on farms and the contrast of where you grew up in, in New Mexico, especially Santa Fe, it's just it's very special to me, man. It's like when I get to New York City, that's special. When you get to Santa Fe, that's very special. And same with, you know, a lot of other places compared to a million other places that I play. But anyway, like I said, I will babble your face off. <laughs> So you oh, got to keep the, you got to keep the reins on me. Oh, you're all right, my friend. And I mean, so we 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 started at that show, right? And then, oh gosh, I must have been a sophomore, right? The next time that Chicago came into town, and I uh-huh. went to go see you with my friend Stacy at uh, at a venue in Albuquerque. And, oh, okay. And here was the crazy thing, right? She and I just happened to see you wandering uh wandering around after the show um and and i just said you know we started talking and you brought us backstage man and i mean i'm still you know all of you know 14 years old or something like that 15 years old and you know my dad is waiting for us out in the in the uh in the parking lot and he's like wondering what the where where are they <laughs> hanging with the band you know so it, yeah. albuquerque, so albuquerque came after we played santa fe correct correct okay okay yeah and so again man that that was another one of those instances where you know just life-changing were absolutely close, were those two gigs close together uh it time-wise no so uh that would have been another what two or three years after like, I saw you in, in what, uh, what Santa year did Fe. we play Santa Fe and what year did we play Albuquerque? Oh gosh. So let me think about this for a second. <laughs> Cause I bet you, I bet I, I, I still have the ticket stub from Albuquerque, which I'd had to go find. Santa um, Fe to me, just going on my gut, uh, memory seemed like it was like early nineties. Yes. You're exactly right. I want to say that it was 90, 92. Yeah, because I, you know, after we played, after Tris came in in 1990, uh, there was, you know, I love Danny Seraphin, uh, but when I played with Danny, I played with Danny for four years from 86 to 1990, early 1990, and then he was gone, and then they brought Tris in, and when Tris came in, there was, you know, I was still so new in the band when I came in in 86 that uh, that I didn't know any of the 
drama or the baggage that they were all had in between each other, personal baggage or or just the overall vibe. I didn't know any of it. I came in totally new in 86, in the in summer of 86. And, uh, you know, of course, by the end of Danny's time, I was well, very well aware of the drama and the baggage. And uh, it wasn't there for the first few years with Danny, but definitely was before he was let go. And uh, so when Tris was in the band, the way my memory had brain works is uh, I recall certain, you know, gigs kind of based on with Danny during Danny time or Tris time. And when we played Santa, Santa Fe, that's why I kind of remember it being early 90s, because it was Tris time. Yes. And there was no weird vibes you know, it was like a party all the time. And there was none of that kind of uncomfortable, weird, crazy vibe and energy going on. So that's how I, that's how my brain works. That's how I remember out of thousands of gigs, how some gigs will stand out just from sheer, were the vibes good? Did the band sound great? And I remember when we got to Santa Fe, we sounded, we were so tight and uh, Tris had already been in the band. And, and so that's how I remember Santa Fe being in the early nineties, because it was, uh, it was right after we had uh, hired Tris. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, that, uh, that show at the Paulo Solari, probably the greatest concert I've ever seen in my life. That's another thing that stands out about that Santa Fe gig is I thought we are incredibly close to the audience. Yes. <laughs> Dude, I mean I was right there in front of you, man. Yeah. I was, I was and and at this point in time I had no idea about gear. I had no idea about anything. All I knew was that there's this guy who's rocking out on a guitar and I'm like absolutely life-changing my the 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 trajectory of my life the 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 decisions i made all happened because of that show that's because of the guitar player that was right in front of me man i tell you man it it affected me that way uh i connect with santa fe so much and uh i just remember that gig it just stood out and it has always stood out of my memory because I just thought, I want to play here all the time. You know, I I love this venue. I love being this close to the crowd. I want to go jump in their lap, you know. <laughs> and, and sometimes I didn't jump in their lap, but sometimes I would take my guitar off and hand it to people and uh, at certain venues and just set it in their lap just to go, here, feel what I'm feeling, the electricity of what I'm feeling. Right. And, so And I... And I got in trouble for doing that sometimes. Well, no, I'll tell you what, man. If I remember correctly, right? Well, I mean, first and foremost, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Santa Fe in particular has such a, a deep, you know, there's there's history for sure. But it's there's also a very very deep, you know, spiritual vibe there. Very. But, but going back to the fact that you wanted to jump into the crowd or, you know, you you would take off your guitar and, and let the, the, the crowd feel the guitar. I remember this story that you had told us at the show in Albuquerque. So this was, a, again, like probably two, three years later. Uh-huh. 
and you and I had, and, and Stacy were backstage and we were talking and you had brought up the fact that the night before, I want to say you may have been in Arizona, but the night before you did that, where you took the guitar off and you put it out to the crowd to let them feel it, but somebody took it from you. That that's a hell of a story in itself, man. It's a, it's a horrible story. And I got, I got my ass in big, huge trouble. That was in their friggin' hometown of Chicago, man. Oh, man. Ooh. And their manager, Howard Kaufman, was there that night. And he read me the riot act because they could get sued for that stuff. It caused a huge brawl. And, you know, every time they play their hometown, it's, it's insane. They have their families come, all their best friends come. And uh, we were at the encore, and we were taking a bow, and I had my guitar with me. And I think I just, I didn't watch it carefully because um, I, the, the guitar, we were all very close to the lip of the stage, and someone grabbed it. Oh, that was one of those few nights where I did not just hand, I mean, you, you would have been insane, out of your mind, to hand a guitar to, to that crowd. They were out of their mind. Oh, man. And uh, that happened because someone grabbed it. It they, they took it, and it started a huge brawl. My guitar tech, Hank Steiger, had to go out and retrieve it, you know, so it wouldn't be taken home. And uh, But it was... It, made, it put him in the middle of that, that whole scene. Oh, and a wow. woman who was under a human mountain of people uh, was injured and minor injuries. But uh, I had to go backstage. Our manager uh, came and got me and told me, uh, you know, I needed to go apologize to her. And I did. And I, I walked up to her and I, you know, on my knees, apologized profusely. And, and I told her I would pay any medical bills, anything. You know, it was a very intense, serious, horrible night in their hometown. I mean, you want to talk about being humiliated and embarrassed? I was, I just wanted to go hide under a rock. I think that was in 94, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right, man. That was yeah. my last year with him. And it may have had a lot to do with it being my last year with him. That oh, wow. that one night. Because I think they already had a lot of beefs with me from the clothes I wore and and the whole thing with Stone of Sisyphus being unreleased and then doing the big band album and I, we were already on, on the outs by that time anyway, and I'm sure they were already getting ready to replace me. Uh, but that night did not help matters. In fact, that night, I'm sure, kickstarted the whole process of them saying, this guy's out of here. Oh, and I don't blame them, you know, because I, I did a lot of crazy stuff. You get caught up in the machine. You uh, you spend a decade with, with a band like that, and... You know, things go wrong. The chemistry, the, the honeymoon is over after a few years. They got rid of Danny Serafin in the middle of my, my time, my decade there. So I, the decade I spent there, I already saw them get rid of 
an original band member. The very guy, one of the three guys that started the band was right. Walt and Jerry Cass. So I, I saw firsthand that no one is sacred, that if you get on their bad side, you're out of there. And, and so after sh that night in Chicago, I could tell, you know, it's like, you know, my days are numbered. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. So you were obviously talking about, you know, your time with Chicago, but you also spent a lot of time with the, with Bob Seger, right? I did. I, uh, 1983 to 19, the beginning of 86 was when, uh, you know, I did, I only did one tour with him, but it was, a a long uh, tour. It wasn't 12 months long. It was half a year, but it was intense. And it was, t every show was sold out. Uh, Chicago, I can't really say that every show we ever did was sold out, but, uh, but Bob, you know, it was just a different level. And it was the first time I'd ever played in an arena with a, with a, national international act like that i had i you know most of my life was spent playing in dives bars clubs well i i find it fascinating because here you are with bob seeger mm -hmm. and then with chicago and these are two of the most i i mean just probably greatest american bands yeah. ever and and you're smack dab in the middle of both of them yeah, and how funny Detroit and Chicago are pretty close together, you know, and and also both cities are uh, humongous, legendary music towns, Motown and Chicago blues and Chicago symphony and and so many great bands from Chicago, Sticks and and Cheap Trick and the Buckinghams and all these bands and then Detroit, you know, God, you could spend the rest of your life just listing everyone from, yeah. from oh. Detroit Oh yeah. and Motown, you know, there's the, the white rock world of Ted Nugent and Bob Seger. And then you had Motown and both of those were just in, incredible legacy from the same city, Detroit, just amazing. So, uh, that, I've always thought that. I always thought it was really interesting and ironic that I ended up with two bands so close together in time because I found out in early 86 that I was no longer with Bob, which was news to me. Oh, wow. Um, and then just a few months later, I got the call to, to join Chicago. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. And just, again, just classic, I mean, iconic American groups, right? Yeah. Uh, that obviously have, have uh, legions of fans all over the world. But when you look at, at true American bands, right? Yeah, they're I, classics. Yeah, I can't help but think of Bob Seger, and I can't help but think of Chicago. And, yeah. you know, here you are right in the middle of them both, man. And I think that is just, I mean, how cool is that? I mean... You know, I I grew up when the first CTA album came out. You know, I gravitated to Terry Kath immediately. Oh yeah. But uh, before CTA's album came out in April '69, some some way I had gotten a hold of Bob Seger's uh, Rambling Gambling Man album. And uh, you know, the album cover is also fun when you're just a 13 year old kid and the girls 
on the cover and her hands on her chest and the other hands on her crotch. Right. Which was the Bob Seger album cover for that album. But it really it had nothing to do with the cover. It was not a Playboy thing. It was it was the music and his voice and his attitude. And it just blew me away, man. I, I played along with that record, you know, hundreds of times. And I just loved the organ. I loved his voice. Uh, at that same time uh, that I was listening to Rambling Gambling Man, I was a gigantic, huge freak out of my mind for Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Wow. And their guitar player, uh, Jimmy, um, who went on to form the band Cactus with Tim Bogart. I finally got to meet Mitch Ryder uh, after a Bob Seger concert, and it was like, you know, I got to meet Roy Orbison in Nashville. On God, the that's the, wow. See, Bob that, Seger tour dude, in Nashville. Wow. And that's, you know, meet, meeting the guy that did Pretty Woman and, oh. and uh, Mitch Ryder, who did, you know, all those t devil with a blue dress on and, and uh, sock it to me and all that, all those tunes. Just, it, it flipped my wig, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> So let me ask you, man. So your influences, Terry Kath, obviously. Uh, I, I hear a ton of Zappa in your playing. I yeah. also hear, you know, Hendrix in there as well. Um, you know, am, am I right or am I am I on the, am I on the right track? <laughs> yeah, well, man. you know, yeah, because so many, I'm really not unique in when, when it comes to those influences because, you know, we were all, Everybody in my age group and many people that came after, many young people today are very influenced by Hendrix and Terry Kath and uh, just as much as we were when it was happening in real time. I remember when I, when I discovered through Zappa, I discovered people like Verace and Stravinsky and all these, all these modern avant-garde kind of classical people. You, you kind of take pride in going, Oh yeah, man! I'm totally hip to music that's a hundred years old, and I'm one of the first on my block to be that smart. Like the original hipster. Yeah, and, and so so it's cool to be young today. All these classic guys are are who the really young guys today still follow, just right. like we followed them when they were in their prime, when they were alive. Unbelievable. Man. When it was all happening in real time. So yeah, Terry Kath and and I mean Hendrix long before that, because Hendrix was sixty-seven, which was the year that CTA just started as a band. Right. And uh but Terry Kath and Carrie Livgren was a huge influence on sure. me because I grew up with, with the guy and right there watching him evolve from when he was a teenager. Most people didn't know who Kerry Livgren was until the mid-70s. Well, I was following him in 1969, and his he had a really similar... There were three guys that I really followed and really styled a lot of my playing after uh, from that time, other than Hendrix and Eric Clapton, Cream era. Sure. Clapton and Hendrix were... And Jeff Beck, for me, were the the three more or the three main ones at first uh, in the early years because 
there was no Terry Kath at that time. Right. And I mean, and I hear Beck all over your playing too. Oh so. man. Uh, yeah. You know, like Beck Ola album. I mean, that hit me, you know, in 69 is when I first heard Beck Ola. It's when it first came out with CTA and King Crimson and, and, uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. It was just an amazing year for music. Mountain, Leslie West and Mountain. Oh, oh yeah. man. Leslie West, his voice and his guitar playing hit me just as hard as Clapton and Hendrix. You know, I went and saw Mountain. I drove from my hometown of Manhattan to Wichita to see Black Sabbath on their very first U.S. tour, open for Mountain. Oh, wow. And... Uh, <clears throat> I had all their albums too, or I had those their first albums. I had the first Black Sabbath album, and I listened to it religiously. Same with the first Mountain album. Leslie West's tone, his yeah, amazing aggressive singing voice. You know, he was this huge mountain of a guy, and uh, that you know all that was happening at the same time. And uh, the first Zeppelin album in '69. And I was floored by all of it. And I love Jimmy Page. Jimmy wasn't really the soloist that Jeff Beck was. And uh, But it's funny how it all came from the Yardbirds and John Mayle, you know, because all those guys had been in Mayle's band before they formed, you know, like Peter Green. Yes. I, yes. Peter Green was the guy, you know, and, and then he left Mayle. To form Fleetwood, you know, to form Fleetwood Peter Mac. Green's Fleetwood Mac was right. what they were called. And then Clapton left Mayo. And Jack Bruce, I think, was with John Mayo. Um, so Mayo, you know, was the breeding ground for so many of those bands, the animals. And uh, John McVie is there with Mayo and Clapton on the cover of that album. You know, and Hideaways on that album. Right. The, the cover of Goods uh, at Albert uh, King or Freddie King. Uh, Freddie King, yeah. And that was all before Cream even started, you know. God, I mean, what a what a time for music too. I know, man. man. Right? And and so many of us were, you know, were were hit in the head like a with a brick from from all that stuff. So it wasn't just me, you know, it's like I was just one of millions that that were taking our cues from these guys. And these guys were kids too you know they were like early to mid 20s and they were so developed and and you know they stood out of the pack you know and, right. and they just man the, the british guys took american blues and just ran with it you know and and they turned back they turned around and fed it back to us right right you know they fed on on what we fed them, and then they fed it back to us. It was kind of like a mother bird regurgitating in its baby's <laughs> mouth. Exactly. <laughs> and, and we ate that little worm all up. Yeah, we did. Yes, and, we did, uh, man. And then, of course, Hendrix. But it's funny that Hendrix was kind of considered a British guy in, when he moved there. You right, know, and, right. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he kind of had one foot in America and one foot over there. But, uh, man. He really they, was, man. He really was the perfect storm when you look at it that way, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The American side, the British side. 
And, and he went just... when he went there, he taught them a lesson. He gave them a big ass whooping. Oh, you know, yeah. you you hear all the stories about how Pete Townsend and Clapton and Jeff Beck all went. Well, I guess I'm selling real estate now. <laughs> right, right. You know, they've all had those comments in the press where they say, "Man, when Jimmy came over here, it was like, what? I didn't, you know, you didn't tell me he was going to be this good." Right. You know, man, can you, you know, imagine? Can you imagine those guys? They were on top of the world, man. Oh, they were man. multimillionaires and they were pop star. I mean, rock stars and not really pop stars, but but man, the who <clears throat> and they were all badass in their own way. You yes, know? they and, were. Yes, they the were. Who, the who were totally badass. And Pete Townsend, he had no rival. No. And and uh, Clapton and, and Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page. You know, I mean, my God, these guys were huge already. And then Hendrix walks in and goes, uh, you might want to sit down. <laughs> but, <laughs> then, but then on top of that, I think the thing that sticks out to me even more, at the end of it, he was just so, I mean, he was shy, yes, but he was, he was also very humble. You know, always, always, like, man. That, that stood out to me. It's like, yeah. I, I loved that about him. It's just such a big part of who Jimmy was, was his shyness and his humbleness. He There was so much keeping him down. Plus, he was black. Right. He, he was also half Cherokee. So he was already uh, a guy in society that... that uh, was beaten down you know what i mean oh absolutely when, when I, you're playing down south and 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 you can't go to a water fountain that says you know whites only you know you're not going to grow up real cocky around stuff like that so i think a lot of those things are what what gave him his humbleness already you know his modesty and his humility was uh just being thankful that he didn't get murdered that night there was nobody like that guy when he came out. You just went, where the hell did this guy come from? Right, man. Right, exactly. Dude, so I'm going to ask you this here because I like we'll we'll go uh, in a little bit of a different direction, but going okay. back going back to you, right? <laughs> um, I know. I can go hours talking about dude, Jimmy well, and Terry and all all our heroes. Man, I can too, but it's so awesome to hear it coming from you because Again, it's like this is these are your influences and they're my influences and they're yeah. still so relevant and so important. We're all kids of those people, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. So with you though, let me ask you this, because I mean you were obviously a fan of Terry. Mm-hmm. Right? And oh, here yeah. you are here you are in Chicago and you know this back catalog of theirs and and Terry's just mastery, you know, that that savant that genius side of him. But then you got like the, you know, the latter Chicago with, with the David Fosters and the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the kind of syrupy kind of stuff. If you, if you will, if you will, Absolutely. Um, how did you approach playing the, the, the real, you know, power ballady type stuff as opposed to the real rock and stuff that, that, you know, Terry was, was kind of synonymous with. When Chicago called me, I was so deep into my own band uh, that I had started when I was with Bob Seeger. When the two years that I was still with Bob, but 
we didn't play, but we were in the studio and um, and we did we recorded the Like a Rock album. We rehearsed it, and uh, so in the meantime, I had so much. I had enough time on my hands that I had left LA and moved back to Kansas to Wichita. And, you know, I had the Bob Seeger thing still going and, and uh, Bob is flying me to Detroit to record. And then when he finally did the actual album, he did it at Criteria in Miami. So I was flying you know, Detroit, Miami. I was also working as a staff writer for uh, Michael O'Connor Music out of uh, in Studio City, and he was flying me to New York to write with Leslie Pearl, uh, one of his his staff writers. And so I was, I had formed my own band called Private Parts. And at the very end of Private Parts, I had just hired Martina McBride as our, she was like the local amazing chick singer wow. singing rock and roll at that time. She had played in her dad's and her father Daryl's uh, country band. But when I met her, she was around 19 and she was trying to be a rock singer, Pat Benatar. And it was 1985, 86. And so she was in her late teens and wanting to be a rock singer before she went full-blown country. And so I had just hired her uh, in just a couple weeks before Chicago called me. Um, and what I'm trying to get at, because I ramble and babble like a mofo, I don't drink <laughs> coffee Thank God I don't drink coffee because I don't do caffeine. Otherwise, I'd be, really be yapping my ass off. <laughs> but So I don't need caffeine. I am caffeine. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, it. private parts, I, my whole agenda with private parts was uh, minimalism, the police, how the police taught us about being minimal you know a trio how a trio could be cool again like right Hendrix experience you know drums bass guitar uh very simple a lot of space sting and andy summer's amazing playing had, it, it just floored me it, it hit me like the beatles like hendrix like all the greats hit me the police hit me like that and so my band private parts was very very policey and Andy Summers didn't do a lot of shredding in the no, police. There no was it was all textural chordal chorus, stereo chorus, and that I just jumped on that train, man. I just I was so attracted to it. You know, Sting and I share a birthday uh, just by a few hours. Oh wow. Um, just like I share a birthday with Stevie Ray Vaughan, although Stevie and I were born on the same day, month, and year. We were born on the exact same day. But uh, I I relate. When I meet, I, I can meet people and almost tell they're a Libra. You know, it, that kind of thing. There's something to astrology. I don't live by it, but but I pay attention to it because I think there's a lot to it. I think you meet... I think there's a lot of traits in, in astrological signs that 
are similar, that there's something to it. There's a theme to it. I agree. I'm a Libra as well, man. So are, I feel Oh, you. that's right. Yeah, God. man. What yep. day is your birthday? Uh, October 10th. 10th? Yeah. We're only a week apart. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's. I think that's why I've always, that's another reason I've always felt a kinship with you and a brotherhood with you because there's just something underlying about it that draws you, you know, and it's funny because I've never really been drawn to Libra women on a, on a romantic, in a romantic thing. Cause uh-huh. we kind of repel, <laughs> but, <laughs> but Libra musicians, male or female, I'm always drawn to, I, cause there's always a similar thing going on. Yes. I, you know, yes. Lindsay Buckingham. These were also Robert Lamb. I, you know, I was drawn to him as a kid and I was drawn to him when I was in the band working with him side by side all the time. I just felt so comfortable in his space and, and the way he thought and the way he wrote lyrics and, and his musical ideas and his songs were always my favorite to play. And even though, you know, Panko, who is a Leo, I feel comfortable playing his stuff too, because all those amazing horn charts. Right. So I try not to put too much emphasis on the astrological thing, but uh, anyway. But whatever. sometimes it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Donnie Davis is a Libra too. Oh, man. He, he's, uh, he's October 12th. Lamb is October 13th. Paul Simon is October 13th. Sammy Hagar is October 13th. David Lee Larry, Roth is, David Larry, Lee Roth is October uh, 10th. Huh? David Lee Roth is October 10th. There which, you go. So there's my, there, there's my, there's my, uh, <laughs> but you know what? Dave's a Libra and not all Libras can be introverted. You know, one of us has to go out there and be the front man. Right. Right. And David, um, he, David he did it quite well. He did. Dave, it. Dave did like a, a good job. He did it like a true, I mean, he may not have show a lot of Libra tendencies, but man, he was just, I love him. I, yeah. I love his voice. I love his attitude. And, you know, he, he got a little creepy and he says, <laughs> he says a lot of outrageous stuff, but you share a, a birthday with a great, great legend, man. I love David Lee Roth. I yeah, really do. Cause, come on, man. David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. Come on. Right. Well, here, I mean, you want to get even like crazier six degrees of separation, just like, I mean, it's, it's insane. I I saw Van Halen. Oh, this must've been 2012. I want to say it was, uh, it was when, when Wolfie was in the band and, and David Lee Roth was singing and I had never seen Van Halen up to that point, but guess who got me tickets and, and passes for that show. But Jason chef, where, where was the gig at? This was in St. Paul, man. Yeah. So Jason, show, I met up with Jason in St. Paul. He brought his sons out to go catch the Van Halen show. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, and he got me. He got me tickets and, and passes, man. And it was, it was a riot. It was. Oh, were they playing? Yeah. In, were Chicago playing there or something? No, no. They. He just. He. He flew out just to catch the show with his kids, man. Jason's always 
going to to Minneapolis St. Paul to work with Paul Peterson. Yes, yes. And 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 Paul is like a big brother to me, man. He is uh Absolutely. Yeah, he's a mentor. He's one of my best friends. Oh I, my god, we yeah. could talk about the Peterson family god, for the man. next 2000 hours. Yeah, I mean Ricky has been on several Oh. Uh, Ricky's been on several of my records. Billy uh, when I first moved out here he was originally supposed to be playing bass for me i oh really yeah man yeah yeah he, he was a steve miller for a long time he right? was with steve miller for about 27 years or something That's like that a long time yeah man and and then there's ricky obviously and there's paul and i met paul the latest right and but he and i just we had, i don't know man there's a, there's a connection he's another libra and you know paul is uh-huh does uh, not surprise me yeah man and he and i just we started riding for the soul renegade record and just uh, the i am self-taught yeah i am self-taught and i never had real you know musical instruction but man if there's anybody that has schooled me in music in in working in a studio in you know, just just as a musician, it's Paul. Paul has kicked my ass on so many different occasions, man. I believe yeah. it. I yeah, believe man. it. I mean, the whole family are they're you know. Yeah. <laughs> what can yeah. you say, man? The the whole collective is just it's just one big genius genius, uh, yes. Genetic pool of you know, and in their case, their family is so big, it's not a pool, it's an ocean, you know? Yeah, I mean, man. Yeah. And I mean, just and now, amazing. Their mom and all oh, their cousins and oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't dude. keep track of it. You know, yeah. they're, they've got their roots so deep into that Minneapolis, St. Paul area of family and, and, you know, church and, and gospel and Prince and, you know, Paisley yeah. Park and all yeah. of it, all you of know, it. the family and yeah, you that, know, talk the, about a record that changed my life. Oh man, you know that was my favorite Prince offshoot by far. Yeah, that, that record was just the second I heard Mutiny, it was over. It was like Saint okay. Paul, yeah, man, Saint Paul, yeah, yeah, that was it, man, dude, yeah. So I mean, it's so funny because here we are chatting, and it's like I mean the parallels that you and I have are just. It's ridiculous, you know? It's a small world, man. It really Music. is. So while you're talking, I was asking about how did you combine, like, I mean, you, you came into Chicago, right? And they started having a lot of the, the you know, the FM, AM, FM hits. The, yeah, the, the power ballads. Yeah, the more power ballad David Foster-y type stuff. Pat, not Terry Katz at all. Right. So how did you, I mean... Well, how like, did you go into I'm, that, man? How that's did why you go I brought in private parts because that, that's why I was talking about that whole thing. Because with private parts and the police and that whole minimalist approach, I I want a band and I want to write songs, and I love the whole approach of the police. I love their philosophy of minimalism, and and that all a lot of what they they've always said that they learned a lot of that from Miles Davis in the way that he had his bebop period with Charlie Parker and Coltrane where they were just flying sheets of notes, you know, just flying solos. And then Miles went very minimal and 
you know, the, the, his cool period and, and where a lot of, uh, a lot of space. And I love that idea because it's something I never tried before because up to that point it was like solo, solo, your face off, solo, solo, lots of notes. And the idea of space and holding back and making space matter and count and using space just as much of a tool as using a lot of notes. Yes. And so that's where my head was at. I was, I was very anti, I was very aware of Chicago re reemerging on the scene. I, I knew that, that uh, how 14, like late 70 after Terry died, I was very aware. I always stayed very aware of them. I always followed their career, even if I didn't listen to it or buy the albums. I always paid attention. Uh, I remember exactly where I was the day Terry died, and and I got the news on the. I heard the radio like everybody else, and and uh, but even though I wasn't buying the albums like I did when I was a kid, I still followed their career. And especially after Terry died and then Donnie left. And after Donnie left, I, I had no idea what the hell was going on with Chicago. I didn't know who their, who replaced Dacus. And I, but I was always a big Champlin fan. Oh, and yeah. always followed the Suns. Yeah, man. Yeah. And then mean, I saw man. that Oof. he had came in and I had, you know, we, all my buddies in my bands in the late, 70s in kansas we were we'd get off the gig and go listen to bobby caldwell's new album uh, what you won't do for love right follow that with i am album by earth wind and fire in the stone like a mofo yeah man which was all david foster and bill champlin and jay graydon and maurice white and and uh, then we'd listen to Sons of Champlin or Champlin's solo album at that time, Runaway and all that stuff. Right. And uh, which was all also Foster-ish, you know, Foster was involved with all that stuff. And so yeah, I was slowly evolving in my consciousness and, and in their world. And I was, I had known that Jason got the gig in 85 uh, because John Keane the drummer I was playing with, with Jason in a band in 84 after the Bob Seger tour, John Keane called me and told me that Jason had gotten the, the Chicago gig. And I went, really? Wow. Wow. Lead singer for Chicago. Man. <laughs> yeah. We went from playing in a bar band in Studio City. And uh, like I said, at that time, I was still with Bob Seger. So... I was really happy for him, and, and then a few months later, he called and tried to convince me to fly to L.A., back to L.A., because I had just moved from L.A. to Wichita and put private parts together. That right. band was only together for about a year and a half, and you know better than anybody what it's like to build up your your following, your fan base, you know? Indeed. Indeed. I'm still trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's hard. It's hard work, and you don't take it for granted. And you also cherish it and value it, and it's everything. It, you know, I love Jason, and I was so honored that he called. And uh, I had just 
been with Bob Seger not too long before that. And then I had my own band. So I just was not in the headspace to all of a sudden get a phone call from a, a good buddy like Jason and go, dude, walk away from your life and come out here and be in my world. <laughs> right. And I just thought, no, <laughs> you know, I just, and so I told him, no, I, I turned him down and I had so many reasons. Plus, you know, my, my two kids were still really young and were in, were there in Wichita with me. And there was so much, so many reasons why I didn't want to take the gig and move away and break up my band, piss off the investors and piss off the band. And, you know, I look at, I mean, the list of enemies I made instantly when I decided to join Chicago, you would not believe the people I pissed off when I took that gig that I was trying to avoid by not taking the gig. Right. Right. Um, so Jason, I said, no. And then he goes, you know, sleep on it for a week and I'll call you back. And I, I knew what I was going to say the next time he called. And sure enough, he did. Because uh, I thought maybe they'll just find another guitar player and I won't even have to deal with turning him down again. But he called back and offered it to me again. And this time, you know, you know, Jason's a very convincing guy. Yeah, he is. He, <laughs> he, uh, he can talk you into anything. You know, he's just a sweetheart. And plus, I just love the guy to death. And I... I, uh, he really convinced me, you know, he played me the tunes over the phone, the new 18 album and, you know, it just sounded so good. And, and, uh, here I was struggling with my own band, making no money. And, uh, he just said, you know, dude, I'm sending you a plane ticket, do it, oh, wow. you, you know, and, and, uh, and so I just said, you know what, I'll come out, I'll, I'll fly out. So I did. And one, Jason is very convincing. Well, so is Pankow and Lamb and, and uh, Seraphin and, and uh, Champlin. And, you know, I mean, God, come on, just right. Champlin alone. Right, man, right. You're in the room with Champlin and you're going to be able to walk out and go, no, I don't want to play with you. <laughs> you know? You hear the Chicago horn section. You go, no, nah, I don't want to play with you guys. You know, at 20 minutes of playing with those guys, with Champlin, the Chicago horns, looking over at Robert freaking Lamb. Right, man, right. And you go, how do I turn this down? Yeah. And I then mean... plus there's Jason. You know, I, I was in love with the guy from day one when I met him with the Gerard audition in 82. Right. When we played together for half a year in 84 you know i i was like everybody else he was very popular everybody loved jason you know he's plus he's just a badass bass player yeah God, he I is man that playing with that guy his vocals we had we both have a high tenor range and we blended together so well and and uh plus his bass playing was just so greasy you know it was like getting addicted to kfc man i <laughs> i That's got awesome. addicted to jason jason's bass playing was so so greasy and so soul food and so funky 
And uh, I never forgot it. And I loved playing with him. So when he's calling me, and then you get out to Danny Serafin's garage, and you're standing there playing with Jason, you know, with your old buddy Jason, all the, you know, your heroes are right there. There's the, there's the whole band of Chicago. And then you got Bill freaking Champlin. Right, man. Right. So what are you going to do? Yeah, you, dude, you're going to, you're going to take the gig. <laughs> yeah. It's the class. It's the classic Chicago old, uh, mob saying we, they made you a deal you couldn't refuse. Right. And uh, so I was there and then Lamb came up to me after and said, you have the gig if you want it. And how much do you want to make? And I told him and he said, okay. <laughs> and so all those stars aligned. Oh, man. And I just could not say no. So yeah. oh I had to go back to Kansas and face everybody and go, guess what? And guess what? I'm going to piss in your post toasties right now. Oh, man. And uh, from my children to my band to the manager and his his uh, partner to all our fans, which all, all 12 of them. <laughs> uh, but they were loyal. Right, right. And so the whole thing, you know, it just sucked. And, and uh, the thing we had built up for the last year and a half, it was just gone, you know, because I I had started it all and controlled it all. And then I just walk away from it all. You know, that's horrible. That's really friggin' horrible. But I didn't just walk away because I was a drug addict or because no, man. I, you, you I was out of to my a legacy. Mind. Yeah, you do. You know, yeah. Chicago was big at that time. They've been big for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, inspiration was on the radio and, and all that stuff, you know, right. hard habit. So your initial question, which I veered off of, <laughs> a total... On a, I'm on another planet of topic, but what your original thing was about saying, how did I maneuver and uh, how did I, you know, the cath thing with the new David Foster power ballad thing, I think it was just because, because I think Chicago themselves had already gotten away from uh, and you can't blame them. You know, they had kind of tried to grow and get beyond the whole cat thing because they had to. They had no other choice. Right, right. You know, they had to get another guitar player if they were going to survive as a band. God. They ended up, after Kath died, or even before Kath died, right before he died, they had gotten, they had parted ways with Gersio. Right. So they were dealing with different producers, different guitar players and the just one of those elements is a huge change for them let alone two you know right. new guitar player no cat and a new producer no gersio i mean right. my god no, gersio no. and cat and no no gersio no cat in chicago how do you conceive of such a thing but they had to do what they did and um by the early 80s they were back on radio making lots of money again and having big hits again and uh, so there was 
much, much less emphasis on the cath material and the cath everything. And so when I came in in summer of 86, there was not a collective cath flag waving over my head at all times. You know, I was not in a cath head space when it came to playing style and gear and the gear he was using. Right. My head space was in the here and now at that time, which was Mike Landau and Tim Pierce and Dan Huff and Michael Thompson. Right. And, and you were uh, also talking about creating like, you know, atmosphere and vibe. Yeah, I was very in Andy Summers and police mode in my head. You know, no power ballads. And so here I am in a band that built their reputation on guitar solos and power ballads. Right. <laughs> the two right. things that I was anti of in my band. And so it was kind of a nightmare. That's why I that's why I turned it all down at the beginning anyway. God, but uh, then for, here you but then here you are, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you, you you come into this and you bring in the atmosphere you bring in the vibe you bring in like that kind of zappa thing right like you terry kath was terry kath like that i like he played like terry kath he was an innovator he was he was that guy mm -hmm. what what you did with that band was you brought it back to that in your own way you know what i mean like you oh had, yeah it was kind bombastic of in a good in a good way you know what i mean yeah, in that kind of 80s kind of way of of how much of the new Chicago <clears throat> sound that were those albums were made with Lukather and Landau and Paul Jackson Jr. and modern current then current guitar sounds, Bob Bradshaw racks, right. stereo racks, a lot of chorus which kind of fit in with my whole Andy Summers chorus. Sure, sure. State of mind. That whole state of mind, I I dove into that state of mind and I had never been in it before because I never had the money or the the accessibility to a Bradshaw rack sitting in, in a band in Kansas. Right. <clears throat> Even before I moved back to Kansas when I still lived in LA, I didn't have the money for a Bradshaw rack or, you know, a stack of 20 different digital rack effects of that I had knew nothing about because I'm an electronic caveman and a technical dweeb. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I went into the studio with Gerard McMahon in 1982 and Michael Austin, son of Mo Austin, right. of Warner Brothers fame, was the producer on that album. And they'd already used landau on that album and landau came in with his, his bradshaw rack and sounded perfect and he's the god that he always has been and then gerard brings me in and michael austin walked in and he goes who's this guy and gerard went he's he's the new guitar player in my band and he went where's his bradshaw rack <laughs> and and uh, gerard says he doesn't have it he didn't have one yet <laughs> And he goes, just listen to him play, Michael. And then with Chicago, I I finally had the budget, and I was surrounded by the experts that built those racks. I, I had access to Bob Bradshaw all of a sudden. So I had an instant in to Dude. Bob 
and all that technology and all the gear. I had the budget finally. Chicago loaned me about twelve grand, and oh I oh my god, wow. took that. I took that twelve grand and put it into my rack. Wow. And and gave, I just basically handed it to Bob Bradshaw and went, Here. "Make me pretty, <laughs> make me pretty, Bob." <laughs> Terry Kath was just not a big part of that world at that time. Terry didn't use racks or no. stereo gear. He didn't play in stereo. He he used that. Little night amp that cost what fifty bucks new in in the sixties. Right. He did a lot with a little, you know, and uh, his gear was always like that, very basic. He didn't have a lot of effects, you know. When when all of a sudden you're being paid a lot of money to uh, recreate uh, what Landau and Lukather had just laid down on these big hit records. And Foster's the producer. And then they bring in Ron Nevison. <laughs> and then I plugged in my Bradshaw rack. And I thought, I got it made. I got a Bradshaw rack. And I went out and I plugged it in. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Oh, man. The learning <clears throat> curve must have been ridiculous. It's, it's one thing to get on stage with Chicago with a Bradshaw rack and fool a bunch of people out in the audience that you don't know what you're doing with a Bradshaw rack and effects. And it's a whole other ball game when you get in a quiet, exp very expensive recording studio with a big producer who goes, okay, hit your first note. And he goes, that sucks. Get Mike Landau on the phone. So when we talk, we're, my God, dude, we could talk for days. Oh, weeks. hell yes, absolutely. Dude, so, yes, yes. So I, I get off track a lot here. No, man. I but I'm I'm here just just I'm following you, man, and I'm just like, God, this is amazing. Um, who are you listening to these days? Who inspires you these days? I listen to everything. I you know, now that we have YouTube and my musical tastes are all over the map and always have been. So now in twenty twenty two I'm just always into all the new guitar players and new, like I was listening to uh, Larry Basilio, the female guitar player. Okay. She's from Brazil, but she plays very Vi-like. And I think she's got Satriani as a guest on her last album. Oh, wow. And and she used Vinny on drums and Lee Sklar on bass a little bit. Yeah, that doesn't suck either. And yeah, I mean, her band is just amazing. She's been around for a few years. She's uh, just such a great guitar player. Another guy I listen to all the time that I learn a lot from is uh, he goes by the name Chords of Orion. Cool, cool name. <clears throat> um, but his real, his actual name is Bill Vinsel with a V. Like Vi, but V E N C I L, Bill Vinsel. Awesome. And Bill is totally into atmospheric, spacey kind of stereo effect, you know, digital delay panning type stuff that I've been doing for a long time. That stuff I did with Chicago during my guitar solo break that I. I used to do, I, I had a song called Darren. It was a tribute to my little brother. Right. And uh, 
And what, the kid that just won a Grammy, uh, Kingfish. Real big Chris, yeah, uh, yep. Another, Chris. Yeah, yeah, Kingfish is. I mean, yeah, I just I incredible. Just, yeah, I just played with him uh, about a month ago. Oh, you did? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. He and I go back a little bit too, man. But yeah, he's. Uh, you guys are the the true real deal of modern blues rock. Uh, the vocals, the guitar solos. You know, I mean, Johnny Lang. Uh, Johnny was the reason why I moved out here. Johnny and oh, his yeah? dad. Johnny and his dad brought me out to Minnesota. So yeah, really? Man, yeah, dude. Yeah. Man, when I first discovered Johnny Lang, I was living in in uh, Paris in 1998, and I was living in Paris, France, and I discovered him, and I just went, "What the fuck?" Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's talk about a guy that's a real deal man that I, I could tell you stories about john man and he's he's uh he's still a dear friend and man i mean he's a very talented cat man i saw him uh i saw i was at that time in paris i was living and playing and working with veronique sanson and her son is you know she was married to steve stills so chris stills is sure. her son yeah and he was opening for Johnny in Paris one night, and I we got to hang with that whole scene one night over there. And who the fuck is this kid? Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, he's just one of those guys that another one of many that uh, are so young that get into the blues world, and they're just like like kingfish, like you said. There's so many of these kids that, and I'm sure you were that way too. Oh man! See, I was listening to you before I was listening to any of that, right? Yes, I mean, that, I that's, the, that's the truth, man. I, I was. And I, was I am one of the masters of the blues world. Let's face it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, just off the top of your head, man, I'm gonna go with both of these bands. First one is gonna be Seeger. Top three favorite Seeger songs that you got to play. Main Street, which is a ballad. Right. Uh, Hollywood Nights. Dude, that's probably my favorite Seeger song, period. Yeah. And her strut. And and her strut, it's gotta be her strut and fire down below. All right. Hey. And let me now let me ask you this, man. Top three favorite Chicago tunes to play on. Introduction. Uh We Can Stop the Hurtin'. Um The Ballet. Right. You know, from Chicago twenty two that in not the color of my world part, but <laughs> I mean, sorry, Jimmy Pankow. I know it's your masterpiece. <laughs> you know, Walt loves it because there's a big flute solo on it. Right, right. And I, and I love the composition of it, but you know, playing it every night is can get tedious. And you know, because my ego is not stroked. There, it doesn't feature guitar. Because with Chicago, you get. If you're a guitar player, you get your ego stroked all the time because there's a million solo songs to solo on. Right. But anyway, Color My World, it, you know, it's just very slow. And I heard it at every high school prom. <laughs> so, but anyway, Jimmy's ballet is just a masterpiece. And it's also very Zappa-like. Yes, West it is. West yes, Virginia it is. Fantasies is very Uncle Meat Zappa-inspired. It's directly inspired by Frank Zappa. Oh, um, a lot of Pankow's uh, 
arranging and horn writing, I think we're very Zappa inspired. I could totally hear that. Um, totally. And then that. plus it's really an involved long piece of music and it's complicated. It's got different time signatures. It's got make me smile as part of the ballet, right. which is an insane song. And plus an incredible guitar solo that I still don't know how to play because Terry Kath's right hand is like a, a friggin' Paul Bunyan wood cutting machine. God, he was so good, man. You know, I mean, that guy, he could have played Malaguena and, you know, his right hand was like Flamingo City, man. You know, he's a big dude. I'm a little weasel, dude. <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, he was just a really strong guy. You can't fake that. And if you're a guitar player and your right hand, if your Terry Cass right hand was so strong, you know, I couldn't keep up with that. Everybody, we're talking with Dwayne Bailey. Thank you, bro. Thank you so much, Ken. It's a huge honor. I I, I love you to death and I love you to pieces. Right back at you. Um, and uh, I'm a huge fan. And... I just, what can I say? I will babble your face off and you cannot <laughs> shut me up. I love it, dude. I love it. I love it. We have on the cutting room floor. It's incredible. This conversation went on for three plus hours and I could have listened to him for another three plus easily. He's one of my favorite people. I want to thank my special guest this week, Mr. Dwayne Bailey. I wouldn't be having my career. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for that man. He's a tremendous talent. Gosh, the fact that he played with Seeger and Chicago, two of the most iconic rock and roll bands of all time. That's yeah, just mind blowing. Just even Chicago alone, stepping into the shoes of Terry Kath, with it's just an impossible feat in and of itself. But what he brought to that band was something very special. I urge you guys to go find him. Uh, you know, go look up some old Chicago YouTube clips. I believe there's one that's uh, live from the Greek, and I think the other one is called And the Band Played On. But either way, he's on fire, man. He's also one of my favorite people and obviously a hell of a storyteller. Again, thank you so much to Dwayne Bailey for being on the show. I want to urge all of you guys to go check out my website, www.kenvaldez.com. Over there, you can find out about my music. You can also find out about this here show. And there's also links to my social media. Go find me, go friend me, go send me a message. I'd love to hear from all of you. If you dig this show and you want to show just a little bit of love, go to Venmo. My Venmo handle is at Ken Valdez. Man, I'll tell you what, it helps when, when I want to bring a guest like Dwayne in or, you know, just to keep this bus on the road, if you will. It takes a little bit of money, so with a little bit of help, we'll keep moving forward. Thank you very much. That's about it. Until next week, my friends, as always, be good to each other and take care of one another. Bye-bye. Keep trying.